O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Those are the first three verses of uh, Psalm 44, which is the psalm appointed for today, Monday, July the 18th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We are uh, continuing our look at the book of Joshua today. We're in the seventh chapter, verses 1 to 13, uh, also in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verses 36 to 46, and then in Romans 13, 8 to 14. So they've conquered Jericho already. We, we didn't read that. It was Sunday's lesson, and, and I don't do a daily lesson for uh, Sundays. I only do uh, the Sunday uh, podcast itself. And so here we are now. We have, um, we're, we're now moving on from uh, Jericho to the next city that, that they're going to conquer. But it's not going to go well for them today. And the first sentence tells us why. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. So what are these devoted things that it's talking about? Well, it, it was intended that everything in the city of Jericho would be destroyed, utterly and completely. And so they kept some of the things that came out of Jericho, and, and that was um, prohibited for them to do. In the same way that you can see Rachel taking her father's household gods when they leave Laban's house and, and with Jacob, uh, Rachel and Leah, as they leave, remember Rachel takes some of the household gods of her father's, and then Laban chases them down, and she hides these things. And, and so it, it doesn't go well. And so it ends up that Rachel doesn't live that much longer after that. And so here, God said, devote these things to destruction, and somebody decided to do a little souvenir collecting. And so that's the problem. This Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, a, a Judahite, had taken some of these things and, and kept them for souvenirs or things of value for himself. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. One person did this, and he brought the anger of the Lord on the entire nation. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, go and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Ai, by the way, is Ai, but it's pronounced Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for there, there are few. In other words, it's a small place. Don't send everybody. There's no reason for everybody to go up there. Um, just send a few thousand people up there, and it'll be okay. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So remember when they came to Jericho, they were told that the hearts of the people of Jericho melted at the news that the Israelites had come, and now they send 3,000 people up against Ai, and they are routed and sent back with their tails between their legs. And so the people of Israel now are the ones whose hearts are melted and became as water. And then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. This is all mourning. 
that they're they're in mourning for what's happened here. And Joshua cries out, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Now, this sounds very familiar. It sounds like the people actually back in the wilderness. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us here in the wilderness? And it's Joshua now, the leader. And remember, he's been told again and again and again, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Fear not, Joshua. And here he's come out, and, and they've gone to Ai, and they're routed. And Joshua's ready to throw in the towel. He's, he's become like the people. Moses never was acting like this. Would, would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan, in the wilderness, Oh, Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? It seems that he is not remotely on board with what's actually happened here. I don't think Joshua knows that Achan has taken these devoted things. He said, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Joshua is in despair. It's like, we, we've been here 15 minutes. We, we were great at the conquest of Jericho, and now we go to Ai, and, and we're routed. And everybody now is going to hear of it. Everybody that thought we were somebody before is going to hear of this, and they're just going to come and kill us. They're going to destroy us and cut our name off from the earth. We're not even going to exist as a people anymore. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? What's wrong with you? (laughs) Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. So he's telling, giving Joshua information. I told them not to do this. I told them not to take any of the devoted things, that all this needed to be completely destroyed. And nope, they've taken them and put some of the things among their own things. So they've enriched themselves as they do this, and they were not intended to do that. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they've, they have become devoted for destruction. So the, before, the things were devoted for destruction, and now he says, y'all are devoted to destruction because you've transgressed against the covenant. You've got to do God's work God's way. And they've refused to do that. They've, they've decided to, to collect some things and enrich themselves that should have been completely destroyed. And, you know, this becomes an issue with the Amorites because Saul, at later time, when he becomes king, is intended to devote all the Amorites for destruction, every single one of them, and he doesn't do it. And that becomes a problem, and it, and it becomes a continuing problem that David has to deal with as well. But God commanded that these people were to be devoted to destruction. In other words, they were to be totally wiped off the face of the earth. So here, God's saying, because they did this, because they transgressed, they, the people, have now been devoted to destruction. I'll be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. And God didn't say who it was. So he left that to the discretion of Achan in order to come forth and tell the truth about what he has done. There's a thing that it kind of reminds me of, um, of, of a scene in Acts, right? When they don't bring, they, they, they lie about a purchase price and they're destroyed for it. And, and that reminds me very much of, the, of this as well as of that scene earlier with Rachel. 
remember the disciples have gone out into the um, mount, into the area around the Mount of Olives, and here it, within that place is another place called Gethsemane, which means oil press. So it, it's not like some deep meaning here. Jesus went with them, with the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, "Sit here while I go over there and pray." And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going on a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus is facing the hour of trouble, and, he, and, and, and it's the most dangerous time, frankly, um, we can see that, that his trouble here isn't, I don't believe that it's the, the, the fear of death. I don't believe that's the issue at all. I believe the issue has to do with he knows the test is going to be severe from this point forward. He knows what's going to happen. He knows that he's going to be beaten, he's going to be mocked, and all the other things that are going to come along with that. And, and to pass that test is going to require more of him than anything that he's done throughout his life. And remember what I've said to you about Moses and uh, Elijah when we talked about the transfiguration. The reason I believe they're there has to do with they blew it. When, when their hour came, their hour of testing came, they both failed. And I believe that that's why they are there speaking with Jesus about his departure is to, to encourage him along the way because they need him to succeed. It's important for Moses and Elijah that he succeed where they failed. And, and so Jesus here now comes to this place, comes to Gethsemane, comes to the hour that he knows will come. And I think that, that he knows the test is going to be great. And so that's why he's praying that, that the Father will allow this cup to pass from him. But at the end, it's nevertheless not my will but thine. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me an hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You want to do this, Peter? You, you, you've expressed right before we came out here who it is you intended to be. You wouldn't fall away, even though everybody else might. You were going to be the one who didn't fall away, and now here you are like everybody else. You're sound asleep, and I've had to wake you. The, the interesting thing is, is that on Passover, you know, they set an extra place at every table, at every Jewish table, for Passover, and it's intended for Elijah, because Elijah is to come before Messiah does. And so the expectation is that he'll come at Passover. And one of the other things that happens is, is that they're intended to stay in study throughout the entire night. And the Passover doesn't end until somebody goes to sleep at your table or in your household such that you can't say their name and wake them up. And at that point, the Passover is over. And so here, Jesus is rousing his disciples that this Passover might not end. And so, again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. In other words, you're going to have to get up now. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The one that he had said would betray him. Remember at the uh, dinner that night, at the Passover supper, remember he said that one of those who dipped with him in the cup would himself be the betrayer. And so he says, see, my betrayer is at hand. In other words, Jesus sees him, sees Judas coming with the soldiers to arrest him. It's a difficult 
painful thing to see this. It's the, the betrayer. Achan was the betrayer of Israel in that first lesson. He was the one who betrayed them by taking devoted things uh, into himself, to himself and keeping it. He, he failed to follow the commandments of God. And because one man failed to keep the commandments of God, the entire nation was put at risk that they themselves would be put to destruction. Here, Judas has done the, the duty that, that he chose for himself, which was to betray Jesus. He sought them out so that he could offer his services as betrayer. He's done this work, and now he puts the entire group of people and the entire project at great risk at this point. And so here he comes. And you can imagine what Jesus is thinking at this point. We, we, it's hard to imagine what the disciples are thinking because they don't seem to be on high alert. They don't seem to be anxious at all about what's getting ready to happen. It's like they haven't paid close enough attention and haven't understood what Jesus said, even though he was clear about these things. And, and now they go. And the purpose of entire, his entire life is, is coming into focus here in these next few lessons that we're going to be reading, and, and Jesus knew it. But I do believe that, that he had concern. The reason he wanted this to pass was I don't believe he was afraid of death at all. I think he was concerned about the test that was coming up. Would he pass that test? Would he remain faithful to the end? Or would he use his power to avert the outcome? In the epistle, Paul says he's continuing to tell us how then we should live if we accept the truth of the gospel. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So he's stating the case in two different ways. He's saying that, that love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. And so what he says is the, the law is the, of the thou shalt nots are all things that don't do wrong to your neighbor. So if you don't do wrong to your neighbor, he says you're loving your neighbor. It's the fulfillment of the law. You're to love God and love your neighbor. And, and he says, this is the way to fulfill that law, is to love each other by doing no wrong to one another. It's, he makes it a simpler command than, than prohibitions, this, than a series of prohibitions. He makes it simpler than that and says, don't, just don't do wrong. If you don't do wrong to the neighbor, then you've fulfilled the commandment. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep ties right in with that passage we just read from the gospel, doesn't it? The hour has come. It's time for you to awake. It's not time for you to rest. You can rest later, is what Paul's saying, exactly what Jesus said to the disciples that night. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, Paul and, and the, the early church believed that they were the last generation, they believed that they would be the ones who would see the coming of the Lord. And so there was a, there's a tension to the, the preparation that we should not lose sight of. Even though it's been 2,000 years, we should, we should heed this same warning. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. We live in the end times, whether those times are short 
or long, I have no earthly idea. But the reality is, is, is that whether he comes soon or your time comes soon, I have no idea. We need to be prepared for either of those eventualities, and that's exactly what Paul and everybody else would encourage us to do. Jesus, you know, he tells the little parable about the the fool with the bigger barns. He had a big crop, so he built bigger barns and said, now my soul can be at ease because I'm fat and happy and flush. And then Jesus says, you fool. You have no idea that your life may be demanded of you today. And it's true. We need to be prepared always, either to meet him in his coming again or to meet him upon our death. We don't know. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. The next minute of this day is not guaranteed to us, and we need to be prepared always. We need to cast off the works of darkness, like Paul says here. Cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And the desires that he's talking about about the flesh are not the bodily desires. We're talking about the things that he was just talking about, orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality. It, it, it seems that, that sex has always been the biggest problem, right? I mean, that, you read that list right there. He, he mentions at the end of it quarreling and jealousy, but before that we get orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, and sensuality. And, and now in, in our day— even parts of the church act like, well, that stuff's not really a big deal. I don't know why you guys make such a big deal out of it. But, but it always has been. It's always been the basest instinct that we have, and it's always intended to be confined. And so it, when he says, don't make provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, and he's just saying, put on Christ. To live as Christ, to die as gain. And it's important that we constantly have ourselves in a, in a state of preparedness to meet him one way or another. And that was Paul's biggest thing, is, is that he wanted to leave the church prepared. And so he was preparing people, and he was preparing a people. So when he wrote, he wrote to churches, and, and he instructed churches. And what he wanted was to see the unity of the church and the love of the church, that, that he would present that bride— pure and spotless, that they would keep the commandments of God, that they would walk in a manner worthy of the great salvation to which they'd been called, that they would be the kingdom of priests and the holy nation that God had always desired. And that's who we're intended to be. And so we're called to that place and we're called to be those people today. We're called to be those people individually and corporately as well. And so it's, it's, in, it, it's incumbent upon us to encourage one another and to spur one another on to love and good deeds so that we are prepared and the world has no excuse because they have seen what it looks like for people to walk according to God's way.